and invite you to get your Bibles, if you would, please. And we're going to turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And I would invite you to stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture together. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to read through chapter 4 and verse 4. So Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, beginning at verse 1, through chapter 4 and verse 4. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom you must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord 
God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to him or listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Lord, we come to you now. Lord, just humble with the reality, Lord, that you are a great God and Savior. Filled, Lord, with a wonderful weekend of celebration, yes, of of the church, but, Lord, of you who are uh, the one who has created the church. And so, Lord, we come now to, to, to learn from you and to grow as a result of you ministering to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us now. Lord, what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me to be your faithful servant, proclaiming your truth for your glory to your people, and Lord, to those that you are drawing to yourself, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I come to this passage as a preacher, I'm immediately confronted with two very relevant questions. Question number one, am I ready to preach knowing that I might encounter distractions of many sorts by God's providence. He's already given us a little distraction. But I've had to, in my times of ministry, deal with various kinds of distractions. Animals, that would be birds and cats, wandering in the auditorium or flying through the auditorium, right in the middle of an important point I'm making. Bugs, large ones, small ones, flying all over me as I'm ministering the word. Noises, which we heard earlier, thunder, lightning, torrential rain, fire engines, trains, sometimes at just the right moment in his providence. Toddlers screaming as loud as they can. Children wandering around and standing next to me as I'm preaching. People falling asleep while I'm preaching, doing the Muppet thing, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, just completely and totally out. And I'm looking at that while I'm preaching, trying to wake up the dead. You know what I'm saying? These are the kind of things that pastors have to deal with sometimes just in the context of preaching. But I have never preached with someone clinging to me. 
I've never had to preach with a Klingon. And for some of you Trekkies out there, you might say, that would be really cool, Pastor Rod. And that is what is happening in this text, isn't it? In verses 11 through 26, as Peter and John are preaching, this, this formerly lame man is clinging to them. The second question that kind of comes to me as a preacher is this. Am I ready to be arrested and put in jail because of the content of my preaching? Now, we're living in strange times, aren't we? And hearing of pastors in the Western Hemisphere, in Canada in particular, being arrested because they won't comply with an overreaching government mandate. And it's a little unnerving, quite frankly. Yet at the same time, I have to say, if I'm arrested for doing what God has called me to do, then so be it. Now, this is, this is troublesome, especially when they simply want their congregations to meet and to gather and to be under the ministry of the word of God. So what kind of preaching lands you in jail? Well, according to Acts chapter 4 and verse 2, when it upsets the powers that be, the religious leaders were greatly annoyed, we're told, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The powers of B don't like what is being taught, in particular proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it can be verified. Acts 4 16 through 17 tells us that the religious leaders can't deny the truthfulness of what is being said, but they're concerned that the news would continue to spread. In other words, it was a religious political move that puts Peter and John in jail for preaching the resurrection of Christ. Am I ready to preach knowing that, my, that I may encounter distractions of many sorts? Yes, I'm ready to do that. We have to endure that. Am I ready to be arrested and put in jail because of the content of my preaching? I hope so. Now, friends, as we come to this text, what we have is a wonderful and shocking account where a lame man is healed and the emphasis is on Jesus in a particular way. Our text is screaming at us, only Jesus has the power to make you whole. And we're going to hear that over and over and over again. And under that emphasis, there are two points that need to be addressed. You don't know what you really need. You see, you truly need Christ to make you whole. Secondly, you don't know who Jesus really is. And in Peter's sermon, Jesus will be identified and clarified with at least six titles that these devout Jews, his audience, understand. Let me just list them for you. Jesus is the servant. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He's the prophet like Moses. He is the Christ. That would be the Messiah. He is the seed of Abraham. And so Peter, knowing his audience, is preaching Christ from the Old Testament, identifying who he is. 
using these titles. So this Jesus, and only this Jesus, has the power to make you whole. And so as we look at our text, it really falls into three categories. First section is the healing, the miracle. The second section is the message or the sermon. And the third section is the response. And this is one of the things that we need to understand as the writers are putting together their record, in particular Luke here, writing Acts. He's not just saying, well, this nice, this nice miracle happened, this miracle. It's not like he's just throwing stuff together as like he has all these different sheets and stuff like that. No, he's, he's laying out for us a miracle that then is explained by the sermon so that we can see who Jesus really is and what we are really like. In other words, the, the, the illustration here is spiritual in nature, just not an accounting of what physically happened. So with that, let's jump into point number one, the occasion for the sermon, the lame man healed. Now, if you remember, one of the effects of the spirit-filled believer that we saw last week is that they look to the needs of others and respond with compassion. And that is what we find Peter and John doing as they make their way to the temple at the three o'clock hour prayer service. First of all, there's this encounter. As Peter and John make their way for that prayer in the temple, they have this beautiful encounter with a well-known 40-year-old man who is a paraplegic from birth, who had been brought by friends to beg for alms, that's money, at this main gate of the temple. And Peter and John gain his attention. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. He's like, look at us. So he looks at them. And Peter says, I have no silver and gold. That's what this man has been asking for every time he's there at the gate. But Peter says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's the encounter, friend. But but here's the proof that Jesus is the one who has the power to make someone whole. Notice what happens here. The healing takes place. Notice how Luke, the physician, gives us a detailed description. I mean, it's really, really powerful. He says his feet and ankles are made strong. Remember, he had never, ever walked before. And the text is making, uh, making it clear. He was lame from birth. His atrophied muscles and unused joints are given life. And leaping up, it says, he stood and began to walk in the temple. How do you walk in a moment when you've never walked before? And then walking and leaping and praising God. There's a number of you people I have never seen leap before. And quite frankly, it's been a long time since I've leapt before. And if I do, I'm going to be sore for the next few days. But friends, the proof here is in the pudding, so to speak. Here is this man, lame from birth, and now he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. It's a complete and thorough healing of someone who had never walked ever before. God brought life to the muscles and to the bones that had never been alive. It's a powerful demonstration of the power of Christ 
worked through the hands of Peter and John. And notice the reaction now of the people. What do we read? What do we read? The people saw the miracle, him walking and praising God. They recognized the man. This is the man who sits at the gate. He's always there begging. He's always there day after day. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what they are seeing. Friends, remember last week? This is the evangelistic awe that was talked about. When God works his will through his people, there is this evangelistic awe that happens to those who are seeing Christ for the first time. They couldn't escape that this lame beggar had been a fixture at this gate for years, and all they could do is be amazed at what they had seen. This man had spent years asking for money, but money wasn't what he really needed. Money had become what he thought he needed. And so money was this temporary satisfaction, this temporary, you might want to say, salve to his condition. But his problem was deeper than money, and it was deeper than his physical healing, as we'll find out here. He needed to be healed. He needed for his legs to come alive. But even more than that, he needed to be spiritually whole. And only Jesus has the power to make him whole. And friends, do you know what your need really is? Do you know your spiritual condition? Do you know that only Jesus has the power to meet that need? Now, some of you might be here. Maybe you're visiting. Maybe you've been here for a while and you're just full of turmoil in your life and struggle and difficulty. And you're trying to find satisfaction by doing this and doing that and trying to pursue the things that life is telling you to pursue. And what I want you to hear today, friends, is it's only Jesus who will bring that ultimate satisfaction to you and make you whole. Do you know that no matter your condition, it is only Jesus that can make you whole? This is the occasion for the sermon. This is the illustration that Peter is is working from now, that, that Luke wants us to see, to prepare us then for this wonderful, powerful sermon that Peter and John are going to give. So now, second point, this is the sermon. The content of the sermon, the servant resurrected. Notice how the people continue to respond to Peter and John as the formerly lame man clings to them. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. I mean, they were excited. This is amazing stuff. Is this really the guy that was sitting at at, at the gate? Year after year after year, i got to see this. I mean, there's someone running and leaping and praising God down going, is that the same guy? Yes, it's the same guy. And they all gather around. Now, this miracle, friends, has done what it's designed to do. Yes, it was designed to heal a man and bring him to faith in Christ. But it was also designed to be a tool that would draw people to hear that Christ is the only one who has the power to make you whole. 
You see, signs and miracles are designed to capture people's attention so that they will stop and listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not the emphasis. They are the light that points to the truth and the reality that only Jesus can make you whole. Now notice how Peter begins his sermon. He anticipates what they're thinking. He's getting into their minds. And he's, that what they're thinking is, what kind of power do these men have that they can perform such a miracle? I mean, today, this would be on Facebook. It would be going around Twitter. People on The View would be talking about what has happened here. Where is the power that these guys have? And what Peter is going to do now immediately is to correct their understanding by pointing to Christ, pointing away from themselves, but to Christ. Notice verse verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. This man's healing didn't come because of us, but by faith. In and through the power of Jesus. That's what he's saying ultimately. John Stott says it rightly. The power was Christ's. The hand was Peter's. So the rest of Peter's address seeks to help this Jewish audience now rightly understand exactly who Jesus is so that they will, uh, it will help them rightly appreciate what Jesus does. Make you whole. And the rest of Peter's sermon has three points identifying the role of Jesus using a key Old Testament messianic title. Jesus as God's servant. That servant with a capital S. And we find that title use of Jesus throughout this episode in chapter 3 and chapter 4 because the story continues way into chapter 4. In chapter 3, verse 13, where we read, God glorified his servant Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 26, God raised up his servant Jesus. In chapter 4, 27 and 30, we read, your holy servant Jesus. It's like, it's like God, through Peter, is saying, Jesus is my servant. Jesus is my servant. I want you to see my servant. And this is a messianic title. In other words, this comes from the Old Testament. And this is the one that the Jews long for. So, here is the first point of his sermon. Jesus is God's glorified servant, but you rejected him. We are not the source of this man's healing, Peter and John are saying, but it is Jesus who is the source of this man's healing. Jesus is God's glorified servant. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. So the one whom Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and our fathers long for is this one, Jesus. And in saying the God of our fathers, what is Peter doing? He's identifying himself with his audience. Our fathers. These are are our patriarchs. These are our promises for our Messiah. 
He's saying that God is at work now in a new and fresh way for his people. But secondly, you rejected God's glorified servant. And notice in this, these next couple of verses here that Jesus is the servant and you delivered him, we're told. Because when Jesus was brought to Pilate, it was the result of the Jewish religious leadership that ushered Jesus into Pilate's presence. They orchestrated it all so that he would be arrested and he would be put on trial and brought into the presence of Pilate. Why? Because they had no authority to kill him. Only Pilate had the authority to make that decision. But Jesus is also the holy and righteous one. And you denied him. When Pilate was offering the choice between Barabbas, a guilty murderer, and Jesus, the innocent one, the Jews rallied together and they denied innocent Jesus. And he chose guilty Barabbas. Here's another messianic title for the Messiah. He is the holy one. He is the chosen one. He's the pure one. He's the set-apart one. He is the righteous one. He is sinless, so brought together. He's the holy and righteous one. Isaiah 53, of course, about this Messiah says this in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. This is Jesus. This is the Christ. And it's a reminder of the centurion's testimony that's recorded for us in Luke 23, 47. And he says, certainly this man was innocent. You see, they took the holy and righteous one and they denied him. And ultimately, Jesus then is the author of life and you killed him. He's the one who gives life. He's the one that makes the spiritual life possible. But you chose to murder him. This is all scathing news, isn't it, to his audience? They're guilty of delivering, denying, and killing God's servant, his chosen Messiah. Now, if if you're a Jew and you're listening to this, you're shocked at what you're hearing. Because Peter is connecting dots, key passages in the Old Testament and the key character in the Old Testament, the servant of God, and saying, you did this, you did this, you did this. But notice, yes, Jesus is God's glorified servant. Yes, you rejected God's glorified servant, but also God raised his glorified servants. So this is God's servant, and God would not let him remain in the tomb. So he raised him from the dead. And we, he said, are all witnesses of that. So this man is healed in your presence, we're told. Not because of any power we may possess, not because of, uh, but because of the power of Jesus. Because only Jesus has the power to make a lame man whole. This man, whom you know and see, is made strong, we're told. He was healed by faith in his name, that is in Jesus' name. It is only by faith in Jesus' name that this man is perfect in his health. And of course, this is a picture of of man's spiritual condition, isn't it? And in particular, the condition of the Jews and the condition of every other person on the planet. 
what is spiritually dead can only be made whole through faith in Jesus. That's the first part of his sermon. It's a little slappy, isn't it? It's a little confrontational, isn't it? It's going for the jugular, isn't it? To his audience, these devout Jews. Now I want you to notice something. I want you to notice, secondly, as we move into this, new, this second section, that Jesus is God's suffering servant, but you ignored him. And there's a, there's a shift in tone that now takes place as Peter begins and continues, I should say, in this sermon. He calls his, his audience now brothers. He's identified with them, but now he's calling them brothers. And he says, you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In other words, the Judaism of the Old Testament scriptures had changed so much to become a religion of rituals and legalism that they no longer could see the truth of the scriptures. So even when Jesus came, and he is revealed in Luke's gospel as well as the other gospels, they still wouldn't listen or be humble. And instead, they sought to shut him up, eventually to murder him. And now their ignorance doesn't excuse or lessen their guilt. Because when Jesus came, he confronted them with the scriptures. They rejected him. But they acted in ignorance. Secondly, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. This is what he's pointing to. This is what he's wanting them to see. You acted in ignorance, but I want to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the suffering servant. Now, the truth is that the Jews have historically denied that the Messiah would suffer. They, they cannot comprehend a Messiah that would suffer. Instead, they taught that the Messiah would come, and when he came, he would overthrow all opposition that Israel would be restored. How could the Messiah suffer? It doesn't make any sense. And when we come to Isaiah 53, that key Old Testament passage, the, they interpret the servant there as representing Israel. Not the Messiah as an individual. But the text is clear that in Isaiah 53 that the servant is an individual, not the nation. Isaiah 53 verse 8, we have a distinction between the servant and my people Israel. So this is, this is focusing on, on the Messiah, not Israel. But see, the, the concept here, and the, the, the struggle here is that Israel can't comprehend how the Messiah could suffer. But Peter is saying, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus is God's suffering servant. That is why Peter had such a difficult time listening to Jesus repeat again and again that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Mark, in his gospel, record that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Why? Because the, the Messiah can't suffer. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. See how ingrained this is in the mind of the Jews of that day. So now Peter has been taught by Jesus. He understands that the Old Testament scriptures, the, the prophets spoke about this, the suffering servant, and the Jesus, uh, that Jesus is now the fulfillment of their prophecies. So, 
says, you acted in ignorance. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Therefore, repent. In verse 19, Peter gives a command, repent. Those who have rejected their Messiah, the suffering servant whom God had glorified, raising him from the dead, must now turn to him. They must embrace him for the Savior and Lord that he is. We saw last week that repentance means a complete turnaround about your life, your loyalties, and your longings. That repentance is a change of heart and mind that results in a change in a person's life. And we said that when a person repents, he or she is a new man or woman under new management with new motives and a new manner of life. And now Peter tells his audience that when they repent, three realities will take place. Repentance would bear fruit in the following, uh, bear the following fruit, I should say. Number one, forgiveness. Your sins will be blotted out. Now this is the promise, that your sins will be wiped away. They will be cast into the depths of the deepest sea, that God will remember your sins no more, that Christ has settled your debt through the blood of Jesus Christ. Scripture over and over and over again describes how God forgives the repentant of their sin. That's why Horatio Spafford said it well in his well-known hymn, It is well with my sin, it is well with my soul, he says, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. You see what he's doing? He's he's focusing in on sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? But the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. There's forgiveness. Secondly, there's refreshment. Times of refreshing will come. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If forgiveness is God's removing your sin, then refreshment is God's showering relief and spiritual benefits on you to refresh your weary soul. I just think a lot of people say, great, I've got my sins forgiven, and they just walk away. And they have no concept of the way in which true conversion brings about life refreshment through the Spirit, by the Word. That's why we read in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's a Benefit. You're welcomed into the family of God. And as God's children, we receive all the benefits of being part of God's family. So for those who realize their true spiritual condition is helpless and lost and blind and in bondage, repentance bears fruit in repentance. It's like a cool breeze on a scorching hot day. It's, it's like a cold water for a parched mouth. The same word is used in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe what happened and the relief that took place in Egypt when God stopped and removed the plague of frogs. They were refreshed. 
Now, some take this to be an eschatological term. In other words, a term that describes what is yet to happen in God's dealings with Israel and that he will usher in a millennial kingdom. However, what Peter is saying here seems to be speaking about a refreshment that they will be experiencing the moment that they confess their sins and bow before Jesus. And not something that was future, but something that would begin now and would continue into the future. So there's forgiveness, there's refreshment. As you see on the screen there, there is hope that they may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And I see, I would say that this is this future hope of Christ coming and Christ uh, restoring and bringing restoration now of all things. Just as the lame man is restored through the power of the Messiah, so the Messiah restores all things by his own power. So this healing is a sign of the resurrection power of Jesus who will one day restore all things as God promised he would at the end of time. You see, the miracles of Jesus are designed to point to Jesus as the resurrection and the life, as the restorer of all things, as, the, as God's anointed king. So here we have three wonderful benefits of true repentance, full and complete forgiveness, wonderful life-producing refreshment, glorious eternal hope. Friends, hang on those. Dwell on those. Marinate in those realities. Because if you're a child of God, they are for you. And Peter is saying to his Jewish audience, this is also for you. This is why the Messiah has come. And this is what can be true with you. Now, it's important that we also notice three dimensions of the ministry of Jesus that this this sermon is bringing out, in particular this section. First of all, the past suffering, and that would be that Christ would suffer. That's verse 18, through Christ's humiliation on the cross. Luke doesn't dial down in explaining all of this in verse 18. Why? Because he's done it from chapter 9 through 24 of his gospel. He's still writing to Theophilus. Go back and read that section, he's saying, to Theophilus. Let me remind you of what I've already established, that Jesus comes and he suffers. And of course, it reminds us that the death of Jesus was no accident. It was God's deliberate intention that he should suffer and die. So past suffering, present then refreshment through the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit and then a future restoration So Jesus is seated on his throne, carrying out his will right now in this season of refreshment, looking for that time when he will ultimately restore all things to himself. And friends, if we look back at Acts chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, and look at verses 6 through 8, we kind of get all this summarized here. This question and Christ's answer is, is, is helping us comprehend even what Peter is saying here. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time, what? Restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost or to the ends of the earth. The point here is this. You don't worry about what the when of that. It's going to happen. Don't worry about the when of it. But you focus on the ministry now because as the gospel goes throughout the Mediterranean world and ultimately to the end of the earth, God's refreshment goes with that gospel. The prophet spoke of a day when God's eternal king would raise the dead to judgment and restore all things. Isaiah 25, 7 and 8, we're told that God will remove the covering of death that covers mankind. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, those who sleep in dust will awake suddenly into everlasting shame and contempt and some to everlasting life, judgment, joy. Ezekiel 37, God will breathe life into the dead bones of Israel and raise them up. And then Isaiah 35, verse 5, this is what we read. It should be on your screen. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see this wonderful picture of conversion and wonderful picture of refreshment. This is what God is doing, and he will bring restoration ultimately when he returns. So this Jesus is the Messiah who suffered, and he will bring refreshment to all who receive him and will restore the world to its former glory. That's the second point of his sermon. And so he moves now into his third point. Jesus is God's resurrected servant. He's his glorified servant. He's God's suffering servant, but he is God's resurrected servant. You should listen to him. And in verses 22 through 26, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus is also God's resurrected servant by pointing and relying on Moses, Samuel, and the prophets, and then Abraham. These are key people that the Jews hold to. And so first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus, first of all, when it comes to Moses, is pictured. Moses spoke of him. Moses is, or sorry, Peter is now quoting Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. Again, passages that these Jews, these devout Jews would know. He says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In other words, this person would be a Jew. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So Jesus is the prophet just like Moses. It's one of your brothers. He's a a fellow Jew. You need to listen to him. If you don't, you will be destroyed from the people, from Israel. Friends, what's going on here is Peter is, is, is giving from the Old Testament strong language that Moses was prophesying here. And he's saying, if you reject Jesus, you will be destroyed from the people. This is a covenant Curse. 
In other words, no Jew understanding God's covenant with them wants to be on the receiving end of a curse. They want to be on the receiving end of a blessing. But if you reject the Messiah, there's no hope for you. Why? Because only Jesus has the power to make you whole. So what is Peter saying? If you reject Christ, if you don't listen to him and repent, you will be eternally cursed. You will be rooted out from among God's people. You will be perceived, your perceived status as God's child will end. And friends, this is, this is a drawing of a line in the sand. So Jesus is pictured here with Moses. Secondly, he is proclaimed. This is verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Samuel was considered the first prophet, the first of the prophets, you might want to say, after Moses, with Moses being the first. And so the point that Peter is making is that Samuel and all the subsequent prophets proclaimed about these days, these days of salvation and refreshment. And their proclamation was for the benefit of Israel. It was for the benefit of you. That's what he's saying. And then, of course, Jesus is promised. This is the, this is the whole bringing of Abraham into the picture. You know that, that God established this covenant with Abraham. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Peter drives home this argument, this covenant argument with Abraham. And of course, every Jew was connected to Abraham. Abraham was their hero, so to speak. And he's saying that when God said in your off, uh, that in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, God was speaking about Jesus. God raised up his servant Jesus to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. So Israel in their present state, as we read in the last text, is a crooked generation. They had distorted the truth of the true Messiah. And, and instead worshiping the God of the Old Testament, they had reduced their religion into one of rituals and legalism. And so now they're walking in wickedness if they refuse to listen to Jesus, God's chosen and resurrected servant. So Jesus is the glorified servant whom God chose. Jesus is the suffering servant whom God sacrificed, and he is the resurrected servant whom God raised. And you rejected him, and you were ignorant of him, and you should listen to him. Therefore, repent, turn back, turn from your wicked ways, and be blessed by having your sins blotted out, by growing and rejoicing in the times of refreshing by being anchored to the certain hope of Christ's return. Now again, if you're a Jew, this is, this is a powerful exposition of Old Testament scriptures, and you're getting hammered to say, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, and this is what he can do for you, and if you reject him, this is the consequence. But you were ignorant. And so I'm going to treat you like brothers who didn't know. And I want to show you that he is the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about.
Now, what's the impact of the sermon? How will the Jews respond to Peter's careful and clear presentation of the gospel? How will they listen to Peter and his careful exposition of Scripture? What effect will God's word through his faithful witness have on the Jerusalem audience? Well, one thing we can say is that will be arresting. First of all, some are arrested for the gospel. The religious leaders made up of the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they're greatly annoyed, we're told. And we're given two reasons why they're annoyed. First of all, just simply the act of teaching. Because they were teaching, in the minds of the religious leaders of the day, the only people who could actually teach from the Old Testament were those who held the Levitical office. So these people shouldn't even be speaking. They shouldn't be teaching Israel about the Old Testament. They have no right to do it. Regardless of whether it's true or not, they shouldn't be speaking. Secondly, is the fact of the resurrection. Because they were proclaiming, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. You see, for the Sadducees, and we have to understand the difference between the Sadducees and, and, and the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were very actually uh, much more orthodox. They believed a lot more of the Old Testament. The Sadducees only believed uh, really in, in, in the Torah. They believed in the first five books primarily of, of the Old Testament, and they denied the supernatural. So they denied things like angels and demons. They denied immortality. They denied the resurrection. And they were typically from Jewish aristocracy. Uh, aristocracy. They were rich. They were people who had, had prominence and they had power. So you add all that together and you understand that this really is not a theological problem for them. This is more of a political problem for them. They don't want someone coming along who's going to stir up the crowds to embrace and to believe and to follow this revolutionary Jesus who we already took care of and put on the cross and crucified. They're annoyed. They probably thought, okay, it's done. It's over with. This one who came and spoke these things, we took care of him, but now his followers are rising up. And not only are they rising up, but they are teaching. How dare they? And they are teaching about the resurrection. So they didn't want any revolutionary group to stir up the pot and cause trouble to descend on Jerusalem and somehow affect their shares and their money and their resource and their standing. And friends, it struck me as I was studying this text that in so many ways, little has changed since the days of Christ. It's a reminder that what we now call cancel culture and critical theory are not new. They've been around for a thousand years, two thousand years. The Sadducees are literally saying, you don't have the right or the freedom to speak. It's critical theory. They're saying, what you are saying doesn't agree with current cultural ideals, so you need to be silenced. It's cancel culture. It's the same stuff. Repackage, friends, that we're experiencing today. And because these religious political leaders are so vigorously annoyed, those who are being faithful to speak the truth of God to a lame Israel are arrested and put in jail. Thus, 
begins the persecution of the church in the book of Acts. But friends, we are not to lose heart. Critical theory and cancel culture or whatever else the world brings our way will not prevail against the church. It won't. It can't. Yes, they're daunting. They're annoying as part of the world that we live in, but they are no problem for our sovereign God. They're no obstacle for Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. Do you think the chaos that we are experiencing here and compared to other parts of the world is not much of a chaos at all? But what we are experiencing hasn't shaken God at all. If anything, it's the means by which God is going to grow and prune his true church. Now just read Acts 4.4. But many of those who had heard the word, what? Believed. (laughs) And the number of the men came to about 5,000. You see what's going on here. Here's this incredible illustration, this wonderful healing, this this miraculous healing of this lame man, picturing the condition of Israel. Peter now preaches to them and says, you have rejected God's servant, Jesus, and he's the only one that can make you whole. You are dead, but he can make you alive. And the powers that be will be opposed to you. But you need to repent. You need to listen to him, and you will receive forgiveness and refreshment and hope. Friends, many Jews believed they heeded and they repented. They began this new life and were experiencing refreshment even on that day. As Peter and John walked into jail, people are walking home refreshed. (laughs) And the church grew. 2,000 more believe, and the church grows to 5,000. So friends, in the face of religious, physical, and political opposition, the church continued to grow, the gospel continued to flourish, and Christ continued to be glorified. Don't ever forget that. Now, let's bring this all to a close. And let me meddle for a few minutes. This morning, I'd like to speak to three groups of people and plead with you to receive God's word and trust that what Peter is saying in his exposition of scriptures is true for you. Not just for Israel, but for you. First of all, I want to speak to the seeker. The seeker is the person who's just wondering about, hmm, What is this thing called Christianity? And God has stirred something up in you, and he's drawing you to listen and to hear. You are the the lame beggar asking for money as if money is what you think you need, is going to bring you satisfaction. But Jesus continues to come to you saying, I can set you free. I can make you whole. I can give you your, your, your dead legs new life so that you're walking, so that you're leaping. So that you're praising God. I can do that. You must repent. You must believe in the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin. 
and to reconcile you to God. Only Jesus has the power to make you whole. Stop chasing after all these areas of satisfaction. Come to Jesus and receive forgiveness and refreshment and a future hope that anchors you to live your life for his glory. Secondly, I want to speak to the professor. Now, who's the professor? The professor is not the smart person in the room. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking here about the one who has been actively involved in church, who has the form of godliness but denies its power. They know the routines of church. They know the language of church. They know the culture of church. And I was struck while studying this passage that there is a parallel between the devout Jew and the professing believer. In other words, we can learn a lot about the professing believer by looking at these devout Jews because they're in in darkness. But they have a form of godliness, don't they? Both are religious and spiritual. Both enjoy the benefits of being part of a religious culture. The Jews being accepted in the community because of their father Abraham and professing Christians because of their acceptance in and conformity to the culture and community of the gathered church. They both speak religiously using words and thoughts and ideas that come from the scriptures. So they sound orthodox, yet they are both ignorant. And I don't mean that as a pejorative. I mean that as a reality. Because they really don't see their helpless condition and their true need for Christ. They are the sons and daughters of a confused religious and political culture. Friends, if anything that our last election taught us is so much of the church is far more political than spiritual. And I'm not talking here necessarily about who you voted for. I'm just talking about where your hopes and dreams lie. And I want to say to you in the sincerest manner possible, only Jesus has the power to make you whole. And what I want to say to you, that although you are responsible for your ignorance, that your ignorance is understandable. Let me explain what I'm saying. Because so much of the modern day Christianity is blinding people to the truth of the gospel. Your true need is distorted. It's not your low self-esteem. <laughs> it's your sin, friends. God is distorted. He's not just some happy grandpa up in heaven saying, oh, just I love you so much. I love you so much. He is a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. And justice and sin must be dealt with. And he does that through Jesus Christ. But there's a distorted view of Christ. That he's just this meek, wonderful guy who only says good things. But that's not the reality. He is the Son of God who has come and he died on the cross. He suffered in your place, providing for you the forgiveness of your sins. He's not some wimpy Jesus, he's not some example for you to follow and live by. He is the very son of God, the great and wonderful servant, anointed one. And as a result of that, the gospel is distorted. 
The gospel is do this and, and do this and help these people and give to these things. When the gospel is not about those things, that might be the fruit of the gospel in the people's life, but that is not the means by which you enter into heaven. So just like the devout Jews were trying to function out of religious fog, so many who profess to follow Christ are doing the same. And they've never truly been confronted with their true condition because the churches in that they're attending don't do that. They've been fed a distorted message about a God who simply loves and accepts who they are without true repentance. And so you look to the wrong things to find satisfaction and wholeness in this world. Shallow preaching with a shallow gospel produces a shallow church. And friends, my estimation is that so much of the church is shallow. I can't control what happens to the rest of the world. But I can have some impact on what happens here at Gateway. The contemporary church isn't rooted to Christ and the gospel. It blows with the wind and the hopes and the dreams and the fears and the beliefs of a pagan culture. And that is why it is giving into the social justice gospel in its many forms, where social justice and equality and the utopian idea that we can remove racism from every form and every form of prejudice It's become this new gospel that is being preached. Not because of faithful expositional preaching, but because of pagan cultural preaching and propaganda. Just imagine, just imagine if all those things were true. If there was a world where justice and equality and impartiality existed. What then? Do you think we will have reached paradise? No. Why? Because man is still depraved. He is tainted with sin throughout his very being. And even what he does that is called good is tainted with sin. In this sin-cursed world, until the Lord returns to restore things to himself, the only hope you and I have is Christ. And the only place where this utopian but still sinful society can flourish is the church with all its warts. It is the true church that truly cares about injustice. It has to. Why? Because that's what Christ said. It's the true church that embraces all as equals. That's what happened with the church. It brought society and said, look, the rich people are gathering the poor. And it just brought everyone together. It's in Christ that these things happen. And it's the true church that is always fighting against prejudice in all its forms. If it's not, it's not the true church. So what you really need, friends, is Jesus. Not the wimpy, let's all get along Jesus, but the I will rock your world Jesus, who when he changes us, causes us to walk and to leap and to praise him for who he truly is. That's the Jesus you need. And my fear is that someone could come through the the doors of Gateway Bible Church and remain a professing Believer. That would be a sad thing, my friends. Only Jesus has the power to make you whole. Third group, to the true believer, 
you have received the word, you've repented of your sins, and as a result, you've had your sins blotted out. You are forgiven. But you're still an unbeliever. (laughs) And you don't know it. Because most of us are blind to the places in our lives where unbelief is present. We have come to put our faith and trust in Christ. We believe what he's done there. But now as we move on in our Christian walk, as the Spirit speaks to us through his word, he shows us areas where God is saying, look, you need to believe what I'm saying about your anger, about your pride, about your guilt, about your your lying, about your pursuit of idols. And we have to believe. And really, friends, our, our walk with Christ is a battle against unbelief and a fight to believe that what Christ says is true is actually true. And when I say what Christ says is true, all of God's word is Christ's word, okay? I'm not just picking out the red letters here. So the believer lives his life continuing to grow in belief in what the Spirit reveals in his word. So if you're a true believer today and you're sitting under the preaching of the word and God is exposing your heart, he's wanting you to say, humble yourself. Listen to what Jesus is saying and believe. See, for every true follower of Christ, we must realize that only Jesus has the power to continue to make you whole as the Holy Spirit exposes your sin through his word. We're just like the Jews. Will we listen? Will we acknowledge our true condition? Will we acknowledge what Jesus has done? Will we see him as the great God that he is? I pray that we will. Lord, help us today. This is such an incredibly powerful second public sermon that Peter preaches to this Jewish audience in Jerusalem, Lord. And, and, and the epicenter of your gospel proclamation is starting to reverberate in Jerusalem. May we allow your word to have that same impact on us today. May we leave today having been challenged Embracing the refreshment that only you give with that hope anchored in the reality that Jesus Christ will come one day to restore all things to himself. And he hasn't abandoned us. But Lord, you are walking with us by your spirit through your word to live our lives for your glory. Lord, may we be faithful to you as we pursue that journey. We ask in your precious holy name, amen.